Please open your scriptures to 1 John chapter 3. And another thank you to Lori for making time to be with us this morning, presenting to us a real and present need. So thank you. And I still get nervous, by the way, to answer your question. Uh, never feel prepared enough. Uh, God has given me great grace to overcome a paralyzing fear of public speaking, to preach. But if it's not preaching, if I'm not asking you to look at the text, I still get very nervous and insecure. I'd rather not do anything else except this. And God has given me great grace to do that. And time and experience helps. And that hairbrush keeps getting stuck, right? When I do that in front of the mirror. Uh, Has your heart ever condemned you? Certainly other people have condemned you. Uh, Maybe you have condemned yourself. That's what we mean by your heart condemning you. But even sort of outside of just you condemning yourself uh, is your heart. It's your inner being, the seat of your affections or your conscience. Has that ever fallen into condemnation on you? Maybe that's happening right now in your own heart. Every Christian community will struggle with some kind of challenge or fragmentation or conflict or prejudice. Sometimes it's blatant and overt. It's like right out there for you to see and feel out in the open. At other times, probably more times than not, it's subtle and covert with evil maneuverings designed to undermine other people. It feigns like spirituality, but it's actually evil. And the community John is writing this little letter to that consists of five chapters was no exception. They had suffered fragmentation. They had suffered challenges. And it can leave a community of genuine believers, especially when influential, charismatic, even narcissistic leaders create a fragmentation and divisiveness that can leave genuine believers with questions. How we love, how we live, and what we believe can get off track at times. I'm not talking about major core doctrines, fundamentals of the faith that determine whether you're a believer or not, but our belief and our life and our love can actually drift off into shipwreck at times. Theological, moral, and relational drift happens. And when it happens, we can become stranded by confusion or our hearts can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin or we can be excessively weighed down by an accusing heart. And God's word offers help for a condemning heart. It's a beautiful little section. Many commentators think this is a digression from what John was saying, but it actually can stand out as one of these highlights of comfort to a condemning and hurting heart. James Montgomery Boyce said this in his commentary on the epistles of John. He said, self-condemnation can be due to a number of factors. It can be a matter of disposition. Some people are just more introspective and melancholy than others. It may be a question of health, how a person feels and inevitably affects how he thinks. It may be due to specific sin. It may be due to circumstances. But whatever the cause, the problem is a real one and quite widespread. How is a believer to deal with such doubt? Of course, John is writing about having assurance that we can know that we have eternal life. In the middle of that assurance and that knowledge and that certainty, certainly he has to at some point address 
a self-condemning heart. Here's the big idea this morning. God uses the truth of his word and the gifts of his spirit to provide assurance and comfort to his children. So really simple, just like last week, uh, we had the example of Cain and the example of Jesus this morning, sort of an extension of that idea. We have the condemning heart and the confident heart. So it's going to be very easy to track with. First John chapter three, look at verse 19. By this, and he's going to use this next phrase twice to bookend this paragraph, this section. He'll use it in verse 19 and verse 24. By this, we shall know something. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever, verse 20, our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. See, this verse about reassurance is linked to the previous verse by this phrase in verse 19, by this. Well, by what? Look, look at the previous verse. Look at verse 18. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By that, by that evidence, you shall know this truth. See, phrases and words matter, and they matter most when important matters are at stake. And they matter most important when matters of eternity are at stake. And it's in this context of assurance. Remember John's stated mission statement for the letter, 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So in this section, there are words and ideas provided for your comfort, for your knowledge. So here's what happens. Yes, loving others provides the evidence of new birth. But everyone in here knows, and I know myself, that my love can grow cold. My love can turn to unloving actions. Regardless of what stage of life we are in or what age, we will enter into seasons of time when my love is no longer a gauge as a security for eternal life. Because there have been times, even in ministry, when I have not loved like Christ. And you have not loved as Christ. So what happens when John goes ahead and he puts forward that as an evidence that we are truly born again, but in our own heart and mind, we know that at times my love doesn't furnish the evidence that I have eternal life. We're fickle creatures, aren't we? We get bitter, don't we? We bite back like sheep. Sometimes that's the only recourse a sheep has is to bite. And sometimes a sheep will bite another sheep or it'll bite the hand of its shepherd. What do we do when no longer does our heart, our love, provide assurance? Look at verse 19. I'm so glad he addresses this. He addresses reassurance, meaning that assurance has faded, that assurance has eroded at some point. And he says this, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth. And what's the next word? Reassure our heart before him. And don't we need that? Don't we need that reassurance after we have sinned or failed 
or messed up, even for a season of life, we need reassurance before him. That word reassure comes from a word that means to convince or to be persuaded by argument. At some points in the Christian life, we will need to be re-persuaded, re-convinced that we're actually genuine followers of Jesus Christ. No matter how firm our assurance may be, there is a sense that every believer will need reassurance. The paragraph begins and ends with the phrase, by this we know. In verse 19, it's future tense. By this we shall know. And then in verse 24, the present tense, by this we will keep on knowing. And we can be sure of the truth when our hearts need reassuring. Look at verse 20. I love this little phrase. For whenever... John makes it sound like this is going to happen often. A frequent experience for the believer. For whenever our heart condemns us. That's a genuine Christian experience. Abraham doubted. Sarah doubted. Habakkuk doubted. John the Baptist doubted. Thomas. Thomas needed reassurance. Why would you say doubted there? Right. Doubting Thomas. Right. We give him that. He was a disciple. He walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus. Thomas doubted and needed reassurance. And so it's probably true, even though we might not feel safe admitting this to one another and being that vulnerable with one another, you and I need reassurance at times. How can these accusations be silenced because sometimes the accusations are legitimate. I've sinned or I've habitually sinned. And there are statements in John that unsettle me. Sometimes our heart condemns us over matters that aren't sinful. Sometimes there are external accusations by a being described as in Revelation 12:10, the accuser of our brothers. There are these spiritual satanic attacks externally. How do we silence these accusations. Look at verse 9. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And he connects it to the previous idea. Let me look at this again. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. When he says by this, here's what he's referring to. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He's going to repeat this again because it is so important. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. Remember, not the basis of our salvation, but the evidence of it. Verse 8, chapter 4, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So let me repeat one observation from that text again, and then, and then communicate a new observation. First of all, some people get so bound up by their lack of assurance because they are focused, they are fixated on their lack of assurance. And they become unhealthily over-introspective. They have become shipwrecked, if you would, by an unhealthy introspection. And if you look at your heart close enough, I mean, if, if you get unduly over-introspective, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find a sin-sick heart. Even the most religious will look in and they will find out the truth of Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that the heart is desperately sick. 
It is evil. Who can understand it? But in a sense, the best way forward for you is to get your focus off your own heart and begin loving others. As the hinge verse, chapter 3, verse 18 says, not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You actually need a next action step of action. Identifying one individual who would be blessed to have you in their life, helping them and being a blessing to them. To come out of our isolated life by genuine actions of love for others even if you don't initially feel like it. As I have been told before, and I tell other people, right feelings follow right actions. The problem is, in our culture, we've been encouraged to make our feelings sort of the locomotive engine, right? And everything else is the caboose. The fact is, you need to love others sacrificially in action. That's the engine. And guess what's going to follow behind that locomotive engine? Your feelings Right feelings follow right actions. But at the same time, we must not confuse these two ideas of love and evidence and love and basis. Because our love, no matter how genuine, how sacrificial, how tangible, is not a sufficient basis of proof for our own heart. Because it is not the basis by which I am forgiven. Our love for others may provide evidence to a watching world and to each other that we are genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ. But at 3.10 in the morning, when my heart is condemning me, my own love will not stand up to the test of condemnation. Does that make sense? If my love for others over even just the past five weeks was my only basis for salvation... I am a condemned man. And, and my own heart will tell me that in the middle of the night. D.A. Carson speaking on the ground of our assurance, alluding to the first Passover in Exodus, and he does it uh, humorously. I will try to remember to include a link to that snippet uh, tomorrow in our Week at a Glance email. Uh, but he says this towards the end after he only in a way that he can deliver this. He says this, Death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised. You're not more saved because you have stronger faith. You're not less saved because you have weak faith. He says, Death passes over them on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. And that's the basis of our salvation. But when that is truly in place, what John is teaching, I will love not in word only, but in action and in truth. So here's what John is saying. John admits that those who truly believe can still suffer from a doubting heart. They can suffer from a condemning heart. We can still suffer from an accusing conscience. One author stated it this way. The emphatic purpose of this whole paragraph is to heal the wounded conscience, not to open its wound wider, to give assurance, not to strike terror into their hearts. That is why John moves, and and this, this is where we've been moving in his argument, this is why John connects reassurance not just to our love in the previous section and in 1 John 4, 7, but notice what he connects it to. Look at verse 20. 
God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. So at 3.10 in the morning when we can't sleep because we are being condemned by our very own heart. Psalm 103.14 For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is what John is saying. When you have moments where in incredible insecurity overtake you, insecurity about your eternal condition, then your assurance must be anchored in God and God alone, not in your ability to generate feelings of assurance. You need to be able to go to an objective basis, and that is an almighty God who not only knows you, but he loves you and he sent his son for you. We've all heard pithy little sayings like, don't follow a trend, follow your heart. Please, please don't repost that. Or just trust your heart. Or she really does have a good heart. But again, what God tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9 is the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the answer he gives in the very next verse sounds a lot like what John does. In verse 10, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So even when our heart is condemning us, there is someone greater than our heart who, by the way, knows you better than you know yourself. Satan, the accuser of the brothers, does not need to fabricate, fabricate something about your life to accuse you. All he has to do is tell the truth about our thoughts, our motives, our actions, and our less than impressive love for one another. Satan doesn't have to lie about you. Satan can tell the truth and accuse you to the Father. Here's the good news message I need today. Stronger than anything I can do to numb the hurt or distract myself from condemnation is the fact that God knows everything about me and He loves me regardless. Listen to what Paul argues in Romans 7, 24-8, verse 1. I won't read the whole section, but he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. A hideous contradiction that Paul admits. But then here's the good news. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no, no what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. Matter of fact, this is an Old Testament concept. Let me read to you how a, the psalmist took comfort in the fact that God is stronger than our heart and He knows everything. Psalm 139. O oh Lord, You have examined my heart and know everything about me. Okay, how do you feel about that this morning? If somebody knows every contour of your heart, of your motives, of your thoughts. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. 
I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand. Now listen to what the psalmist, with that, that scrutinizing knowledge of God, that he sees everything, single thing about us. Listen to where he lands. And when I wake up, you are still with me. He finds comfort in the presence and the knowledge of God who is greater than our heart. Probably one of my favorite scenes in the Gospels, John, in his account of the Gospel, actually records this. And it is Peter's restoration. We've talked about that before here. He denies Jesus three different times. Peter then, before the other men, because he needs to be restored as a leader, is given three opportunities to then affirm his love. On the third one, I want you to notice what Peter says. Because Peter's heart was condemning him. He ran out to the streets of Jerusalem after the prophecy came true. And it says he broke down and he wept. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, listen to what Peter says. Lord, he didn't say this the first two times. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus then goes to give him another glimpse of his omniscience, the fact that he does know everything. And on the first occasion, Peter rejected it. He resisted the prophecy that Christ gave to him. But Peter doesn't resist Jesus' prophecy this time, even though it must have been just as hard to hear. Listen to what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he looked to Peter and he said to him, follow me. It's amazing the themes that John weaves Here again, love, restoration, reassurance, the knowledge of God and obedience. All these truths flowing out from this letter of 1 John. So so when John writes this in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We rejoice. But what happens then as believers, if we sin or even fall into a season of sin? Well, John also says this in 1 John 2, verse 1. If anyone, he's talking to believers, does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
Now, I've spent most of our time there this morning because what he is about to address in the next section, he will repeat in chapter five. So I just want to take a couple minutes and look as he shifts from the condemning heart to the uncondemning heart. And then we'll be finished. Look at verse 21. Beloved, that's a term of concern and compassion for those who have struggled with a condemning heart. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John Stott said this, God's omniscience should relieve, not terrify us. So even with a believer struggling with a condemning heart who finds reassurance, he will still then find a heart of confidence to approach God, specifically confidence to communicate with God. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And really in this, we ought to imitate the confidence of Christ. I'm going to read two passages in connection to this. In John chapter 11, Jesus was about to bring Lazarus back from the dead. John, recording this, says this in John chapter 11, verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, this is a prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always Hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Like Christ, who had confidence to draw near to the Father. At times, the Father, who was even silent to Jesus, said, I knew that you always hear me. That's the confidence we should have as followers of Jesus Christ, even when God seems silent. And we can have that same confidence because Jesus represents us as our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you ever have trouble sympathizing with other people's weaknesses? Instead of showing sympathy or empathy, I mean, you just rush in and you make the condemnation even more severe. And maybe that's your experience. Maybe you received that consistently from other people. Do you know you have a high priest? One. I'm not a priest. I would have to remind police officers in Zambia about that. They would look in the back of our vehicle and they would see six children. And immediately they would call me Bata'ata, which is my father. And I would have to say, I'm not your father. I am a pastor. He automatically assumed I was, I was a Catholic priest because of our large family in Africa. I'm not your father. I'm not your priest. I'm not your father. But you do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses, one who in every respect has been tempted as you are yet without sin. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the big point John makes. You have a reassured heart. Maybe you have a condemning heart, but you need the confidence to now communicate to God and pray and look to him. John will say this at the end of his letter. First, John, chapter five, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let me ask you, what do you need this morning most? And can you pray for that 
in keeping with God's will. And if you can, guess what? He will answer it. Verse 23, one command with two parts, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Two parts to one command, explicit belief in Jesus as the son of God. And secondly, that that belief now flowing out into love for one another. And then finally, he finishes this paragraph with verse 24, uh, talking about a mutual abiding. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Three verses and I'm done because I don't want to just bypass this incredible, unique gift of God's spirit to us. Do you know that the spirit proof of the fact that you have the indwelling spirit of God in your heart is the fact that he creates the love that serves as evidence Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's why John can assertively say, if you don't love, you're not even of God. Because the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. Romans 5, 8, verse 15, he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Does the Holy Spirit do that to you in your heart, even amidst a condemning heart? As Paul would say in Galatians 4, verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. First John three twenty four. look back down at the scriptures. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Do you have that assurance this morning? Or perhaps you are in need of reassurance. God uses the truth of His Word and the gift of His Spirit to provide assurance and comfort His children. I want to invite our music team forward. While they get in place, I want to read once again D.A. Carson's quote as he speaks about the ground of our assurance. Death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. Have you believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your Lord and your Savior. That will silence a condemning heart. Let's pray.